There's a game that I like to play with my family. I'm not sure they always like to play it, but I really enjoy it. It's Would You Rather. How many of you have ever played that game? Would You Rather. And so you, you set up two opposing, not always opposing, but two separate ideas, and you have to choose one or the other. You can't wiggle your way into saying, well, kind of in different circumstances this. You have to choose one or the other. Some of them might be kind of silly. One of my favorites is goes something like, would you rather have fingers the length of your legs or legs the length of your fingers? That's a tough one, right? <laughs> Some of them are, are more, cause more introspection, more reflection about what's important in life. So one like that might go, would you rather have $10 million added to your bank account or 10 quality years added to your life? Tough question. Here's another one. Would you rather have happiness or obedience? Would you rather be happy or obey? I see those wrinkled up noses. Growing up, I thought they were always opposed. They're absolutely opposed. I can either pursue my own happiness or I can pursue obedience to my father and mother, right? And usually those two things, I couldn't see how that they would mix, how they would overlap. And yet, isn't it true that we still have a hard time seeing these things as mutually exclusive. I either, I either have to have happiness and joy or I have to submit to someone and obey them. They, it doesn't seem to work out that way. Even we as adults, even as Christians, we struggle with this. We sin because we think to submit to the Lord is to forfeit our own happiness. We think pursuing our own happiness excludes obeying the Lord. And yet, in our passage this morning, Jesus shows us this is absolutely not the case. Jesus shows us that obeying the Father is what true joy is. And having joy in the Father and in His will leads to happy obedience. Jesus puts this on display for us, and it is glorious to see. In this passage, we see Jesus pursues his mission for his own joy and for your everlasting joy. Jesus pursues his mission for the joy of obedience to his Father and a reward. The reward of a people saved by his work. For the glory of God. And for their good. Really we could view this section as uh, Jesus' mission in seed form. We could unpack it and see how this applies throughout his life and for his mission then and now through the church. You remember the context of our passage. We're jumping in toward the end of this 
story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. He had sat down, weary from his journey. The disciples had gone away into town to buy food, and he struck up a conversation with this Samaritan woman. They had a, a wide-ranging conversation from water to spiritual water to the right kind of worship, the right place of worship to her own sin and her own brokenness in her life to the point where Jesus reveals, I, the one speaking you, to you am the Christ. And in her excitement, remember what she does, she leaves her water pot and she runs back to the town. Can this be the Christ? Come meet a man who told me everything that I've ever done. Could this be the one who will save us? Could this be the Christ? And then we arrive at our story this morning, beginning in verse 31, going through verse 42. Before we continue on, though, let's spend a moment asking God to open our hearts to hear his word, open our ears, and change our hearts that we might respond in joyful obedience. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we pray that you would use it for your glory and for our good. Use it to bear fruit in our hearts. Use it to increase our joy in Christ and in your will. Use it to grow us in obedience. Add to us the fruit of your Holy Spirit that we might walk in your ways, that we might follow Christ, that we might love him above all things and that we might obey him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want us to consider then the mission of Jesus and in particular his pursuit of this mission, this will of God for his own joy and for the joy of those who are saved. We'll do that in three ways. As we walk through this part of the story, we'll consider its priority, this priority that it took. We'll consider its partnership, and we'll consider its result, or the goal. So in verses 31 through 35 is what I've called this priority. This priority of Jesus for his mission. The disciples are urging Jesus to eat. He's no doubt hungry. It's already been said in the text that he was weary from his journey, so he sat down for a drink of water. He wanted something to, to drink. Jesus, as one who is truly human, got tired, got hungry, got thirsty. This is the reason his disciples went into town to buy food. He's weary, he's hungry, he's thirsty. They come back and they are urging him to eat. They know he needs food. They know he needs nourishment to be able to be sustained in his ministry. And Jesus says something that confuses them. I have food that you don't know about. And they're thinking, how did you smuggle food in your robe? Or where, you know, where is this food you're speaking about? But just like, the, just like Nicodemus misunderstood, and just like the woman misunderstood, Jesus is not speaking about physical things, he's earthly things. He's speaking about spiritual realities of which they were sometimes blinded to. I have food you don't know about. And then he says what that food is to make it clear to them. He says, my food 
is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Such an amazing statement, is it not? We could spend our entire time, multiple sermons on this. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his purposes. His mission first is a priority because of his joy in doing the will of God. It's a priority to him because of his joy in his Father's will for him. See, Jesus needed food just like we need food. It it is one of the basic human necessities. If we're going to be healthy, if we're going to live, if we're going to be strengthened, we need food. Jesus needed food. But at this particular moment, he knew he needed something even more than food. And that is a radical statement. It, it, he's exemplifying what we see in Deuteronomy 8, 3. The reason God fed you man in the wilderness, the reason why you were hungry, is that you might learn that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Jesus pursues the will of his Father with joy throughout all of his ministry. And we see it in the Gospels. We see it throughout John. In John 5, verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. I seek not my will, but the will of him who sent me. In John 6, 38 through 40, he again is saying, my will is to do the Father's will. And this is his will, that I should lose nothing of what he has given me, but accomplish his purposes. In John 14, 31, I do as the Father has commanded me, so the world will know I love the Father. And then all the way at John 17, 4, Jesus having come to the place where he's about to be arrested, come to the place where his suffering is about to occur, he can, he can look at that moment, his hour which is coming, and say, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave to me. Now glorify me. And then he's immediately arrested. Jesus' mission is a priority first because of his joy in doing the will of God. And we know what that will is. That will is to obey him in all things. We looked last week at the active obedience of Christ. This is again pointing to that active obedience of Christ. He has obeyed the Father where we have failed to obey the Father. Where we fail every day. It is not your natural tendency to do this. To say, my food is to do the will of God in heaven. And yet it goes beyond merely doing the will of God and his active obedience. It also includes accomplishing the work which God had for Jesus, which is being lifted up on the cross to die as a substitute for sinners. Not only does he, has he lived for us, he has also died for us. He accomplished what you couldn't accomplish by your life, and he accomplished what you needed to happen, what you deserved to happen by his death on the cross for you. We would do well to spend some time and reflect on our priorities, on what it is that ranks highest on our priority list because of what gives us great joy. Jesus pursued with highest priority the mission of God because it gave him joy 
to do the will of God? What, what brings you joy? Another way we could ask it is to kind of put ourselves in a similar situation. What is it that gives us so much joy that we forget about eating? That we don't, we don't recognize the need to eat. This is what's happening with Jesus. I have another kind of food which I must pursue. For me, one thing is sitting on the beach in the summer, looking at the waves with a line and a lure out in the water, fishing. And I really can forget to eat. I sit there, out, out there for hours, just enjoying God's beautiful creation. And, and if you know me, you know I love to eat too. I, I have to eat at the precise time that I have to eat. It's got to be within an hour or so of 12, of 12 o'clock or I get really hangry. I get really irritable. I have to eat. And yet, when I'm at the beach enjoying God's good creation, I forget about food. That's how much joy I take in, in that. Well, what is it for you? What sorts of things make you forget about eating because you enjoy them so much? And when is the last time I forgot to eat because I was praying to the Lord. Or because I was enjoying his word to me and I forgot. I lost track of time. Your word, O oh Lord, is sweeter than honey. Worth more than silver or gold, much fine treasure. I, I need it. This is my food. God's word is my food. God's will is my food. When is the last time, brothers and sisters? We pursued God's mission with such joy in Him. Well, Jesus has fulfilled this where we have failed. Jesus has done this where we have failed and where we still fail today because it is His great joy. But notice also this priority because of an urgent matter. There's an urgency to the situation. Look what he says in verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. In other words, there's this natural, inter, uh, there's this natural time, period of time between planting the seed and harvesting the, the seed. Don't you say it takes a certain amount of time? Four months, then the harvest? I tell you, look, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white with harvest. What is he talking about there? He's talking about verse 30. They went out of the town and they were coming to him. The woman goes into the town and says, come meet a man who told me everything I'd ever done. Could this be the Christ? And here they come. They're streaming out of the town, coming towards him. And Jesus says, there's no period of time now between the speaking of the word, the planting of the seed and the harvest. Don't you see I don't have time for food right now. I have to pursue this mission. Look at this. These people are coming. They're ripe for harvest. We don't have time for this right now. We have to pursue this mission. He had an urgency because the harvest was ready. He, he knew, this is interesting, he knew the sovereignty of God. We, we believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe that God is sovereign over everything. I was just telling uh, my mother this over a meal the other day. Every raindrop that falls from the sky, every blade of grass that waves in the breeze is under 
the sovereign control of our God, who is like our God. Jesus knew this. Jesus believed this. And yet, he knew that this was an urgent matter. That if he was passive and that he let this slip, slip by, that people who were coming to him would not be harvested as they needed to be harvest, harvested. Just like the grapes in my backyard on the wild vine. If, if we wait too long and we don't pick them when they're right, they'll fall to the ground and they will spoil. It was an urgent matter for Jesus. That's why he had such a priority for this mission. The fields are ripe for harvest. So as far as application, we've already looked at some of it. First and foremost, as Jason pointed out, we have to look to Christ who has fulfilled this obedience to the will of God perfectly for us. And there's no way we can do that. We failed already. If we got to start over uh, after service today, let's say you get, you get to start over at 12 o'clock, 1130, you would still fail. You'd fail within an hour of doing the Father's will. But Jesus kept it perfectly for us, for you. It counts for you, brothers and sisters, who have come to him in faith. This is a great comfort to know that he receives us. God receives us because of the active righteousness of Jesus Christ. But we also ought to consider, we also ought to consider the mission of Christ. As we'll see, he shares this mission with us. We ought to consider our own priorities and our own schedules. When's the last time your schedule got messed up for the mission of God? To obey His will for the glory of God. Do our schedules only get ruined for recreation or leisure? Every, everything you do is because ultimately somewhere, I know it's more nuanced than this, but ultimately somewhere it's because you think that's what's going to give you joy. You think that's what's going to give you happiness in conflicts, your relationships, in other areas of disobedience, of, of anger, or of pride, prideful things, disobedience to parents. All of these things ultimately root themselves in kind of the selfish desire to be happy and you think this is how you're going to get it. Well, what would it look like if by the power of the Holy Spirit, by His grace, the fruit of the Spirit began to display itself more and more in our obedience to the Father's will. Not just our obedience, our joyful obedience to the Father's will. That our schedules might get mix, mixed up, might get ruined, so that we can invest in the life of a brother or sister. So that we can take time to speak to an unbelieving neighbor so that we might get lost in our prayer time or reading his word. May it be so. May God do that in us. This mission was a great priority for Jesus, but also notice the partnership of this mission, verses 36 to 38. He, he continues on and changes this, this parable, this metaphor a little bit, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. 
Again, it's this, there's no interval of time between the sowing and the reaping. The sower and the reaper, they rejoice together. It's all happening right here in the moment. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Think more about this, this simultaneous sowing and reaping. These things, two things that are separated naturally in the natural order, but now Jesus is saying they're coming together. And I would argue Jesus here is saying more than simply something related just to this paragraph, this, just this particular passage. I think he's pointing to the fact of the Old Testament promises which point to the new age of the Messiah that he will bring. There are promises in Leviticus. Turn in your Bible to Leviticus 26, verses 3 through 5, where God is promising something for the obedience of the people, which they failed. But I think this, this promise ultimately is pointing to Christ and is fulfilled in His coming, not in an earthly way, but in a spiritual way. Leviticus 26, 3 to 5. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, which Jesus has done perfectly, then I will give you your rains in their seasons, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I'll give you peace. He goes on and on about the abundance, the prosperity which they will enjoy if they indeed obey Him. But you, you see this, these times, these intervening times of planting and reaping, they're all mixing together in this promise. But even more clearly, we see this in Amos chapter 9. Amos chapter 9, verses 13 to 15. He's talking about the days which are coming. He's, he's pointing the people of the time forward, getting them to look beyond their present circumstance of brokenness when God will restore His people. He says in Amos 9.13 and following, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The, the, the time period collapses. They come together. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land. And they shall never again be uprooted out of the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Jesus, once again, is proclaiming the beginning of a new age. The age which was promised by the prophets is now here. The time of sowing and reaping comes together and the sower and the harvester, they rejoice together in this work. Jesus says to his disciples, I, I sent you to work where you have, uh, to reap where you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. And there's some confusion there about well, who is he talking about? We, did, we haven't seen Jesus actually send them out, so it must have happened 
somewhere else, but I think generally he's speaking of their mission. I'm sending you out to go where others have already been laboring, others have already been working. There's this partnership between people you don't know and the work that you're doing. It's God's people doing it together. Some have said he's speaking here of the Old Testament prophets, of the scriptures which were spoken. God was doing his work through their message in the lives of the Samaritans as well as, as others. Some have said, as referring probably to John the Baptist and the preparatory work that he had been doing before Jesus and his disciples came. And I would agree with, with both of those things. You could even say, perhaps he's speaking of the woman who just went into the town and was proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Because it says later, some believed because of her testimony that Jesus was the Christ. But I want, what I want you to see is that there is a, a shared joy that Jesus gives us in a partnership of his mission. He, hasn't, he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to share this mission with his disciples and with his people. And yet he has done so. And this is for our joy. It's for our joy that we participate in this mission. How do you try to motivate people to do what you want them to do as an example how could i motivate you to listen well to my sermons now some of those droopy eyes are perking up or popping open a little bit right how can i motivate you to listen well well i could give you a guilt trip right mom and dad know how to do this well probably you should li- you should really listen to the sermon he works hard all week You come to church, what are you doing not listening? You know it will be for your good. Really lay down the guilt on you and try to get you to listen. It's your duty as a good son or daughter, as a good Christian. It's your duty to do that. It's your duty to listen. You you need to do that. Uh, Or what if I gave you a reward? (laughs) Maybe that would work if I promised a reward. Maybe if I said I'll give you $5.00. If everybody listens, you t- everybody who takes really good notes, I'll give you a reward. Well, actually, Jesus does point to a reward for partnering with him in his mission. It's not $5. <laughs> it's no amount of money. It's no external kind of material thing. What does he point to as the reward that makes the sower and the reaper rejoice together. We're, we're re- rejoicing together with those prophets of the Old Testament, with Jesus himself, with the disciples, with all of God's church. We are rejoicing together in the partnership of this mission. Why? Because the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. This is the reward which Jesus sought. A people saved by his own work. And this is a worthy reward for us, brothers and sisters. You don't need guilt to motivate you. You don't need duty to motivate you. You need joy in the reward which he gives for the mission. When that unbelieving friend of yours, when that unbelieving neighbor, when her eyes are opened and she sees Jesus as the treasure which he is, that is the reward you need. That's the reward we seek, brothers and sisters. Who, who do you know who doesn't know Christ, who is still dead in their sins and transgressions? 
Who do you know that is still under the guilt of sin and under the wrath of God without hope in the world? Would that not be a worthy reward for partnering with Christ and his people for the mission of God? You see, this is a shared joy and shared joys are so much sweeter than solitary joys. Jesus wasn't just content to have this joy for himself, but he has seen fit to share it with us, brothers and sisters. This is a partnership for the sake of the gospel. This is a part of the reason we exist. We exist to love God's glory, to love God's people, one another, and to love God's world, seeking to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, his work for sinners that they might have life, seeking to show his love, the love which he showed, so that this reward might become a reality. And this is, this is what we see in the third point, the result of this mission in verses 39 to 42, this harvest which is coming. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, what she had said. He told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? That's why I think it, it, her, her witness turned from just being, can this be the Christ? To surely this is the Christ. They came to believe because of her witness. And when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. He stayed two days. And many more believed because of his word. Because of his urgency, because he prioritized the mission of God, he knew this moment could pass. So he plunged himself into the work of God for the sake of these Samaritans, these brothers and sisters. These were the ones that were harvested for eternal life no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world notice a couple of things in these verses notice why it is the people believe notice the repetition in these verses they believed in him because of the woman's testimony, her words to them. She spoke words. He told me everything I ever did about his, his person, about his power. Could this be the Christ, the Messiah? And then many more believed because of his word, because of the things that Jesus himself spoke to them in those two days where he stayed with them. And then they say it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the Word. There's a whole lot of speaking and hearing which precedes believing. Right? This is how the gospel goes forth and has its effect. As Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. There is an there's an outward proclamation of the gospel. There's a speaking of the good news of Jesus. And then there is the word of Christ which goes with that word, which penetrates hearts, awakens their hearts, and allows them to truly hear. Not just hear the words, but to hear the gospel and to receive it. Or we could look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 
where Paul is talking about the foolishness of what they preach. God, plead, God was pleased to use the foolishness, foolishness of what we preach. Christ crucified for, sin, for sinners. It's all about preaching the word, preaching Christ, preaching the gospel, and hearing. This is why, brothers and sisters, you make it a habit of coming to church regularly. It won't do for you to read a message, a manuscript on pages, or to read a book of sermons. There's something different in the proclamation of the Word of God. I'm not opposed to videos, but this is another reason why I don't want to have a huge reliance on videos. People are saved. We are changed by the proclamation of the Word of God. Something supernatural happens as a sinful person like myself, given the role of preaching, proclaims the Word of God. The Holy Spirit goes with His Word and is working in you, even if you don't perhaps believe it, even if you don't apprehend what spiritual thing is taking place. You showing up week after week to hear the Word of God with an ounce of faith as God creates that faith in you. Jesus is changing you. And that's how He saves sinners. This is how He's going to save those people you've thought of who are unbelievers, who are desperately in sin and without hope in the world through the proclamation of the gospel. And you don't need, you don't need a lectern to do that. You can speak to them the word of Christ like this woman did to, those, to her neighbors. Come and meet this man. Could this be the one that you've been waiting for? Could this be the Christ, the one who will save you, speaking words of good news to those who are in sin? Hearing and believing then results in eternal life. For these Samaritans, right then and there, and then forever afterwards in heaven. Notice also that they proclaim Him as Savior of the world. Not just Savior of the Jews. These were Samaritans who were being saved. Savior of all sorts of different ethnic peoples of people who speak all different kinds of languages, of people who have all different kinds of skin tones. The gospel is not for a particular set of people. It is for all people that God might save a people for himself, a diverse and beautiful people for himself. This is his reward. As we think about uh, Revelation, as all the people from tongues, tribes, and nations are gathered together. This is the reward which Jesus sought and pursued and bought with his own blood. And he has given us the privilege to share in that joy together. He has given this mission to the church through his disciples. You remember in Acts 1.8, he says, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and what else? And to the ends of the earth. In the Great Commission, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them all that I have commanded you to do. He has extended this mission, which we see in seed form here with the Samaritans. He's extended that to the church that we might participate with him in his mission. But we don't participate in the same way. We do not perfectly obey the Father's will like he has done. That was once and for all done by Jesus Christ for you. 
And we cannot possibly die for the sins of any person. We don't pretend to begin to sacrifice ourselves for others, not to repeat his work, but to proclaim his work. This is the way of salvation. This is the good news, brothers and sisters. Christ crucified for sinners. So I ask you again then, would you rather have joy or obedience? Of course, they're not opposed to one another at all. We should rather ask, would you rather have the pitiful joys of this world or the joy which is only found in Jesus Christ? Let's pray together.